Well, good morning, Calvary Baptist Church. So happy to be with you on a beautiful Sunday morning. If you could please open your Bibles or open your applications to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. The book of Hebrews, chapter 2, will be in verses 5 through 18 this morning, 5 through 18. While you do that, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Eli Garza. I have the privilege of serving as the student young adult discipleship pastor here at Calvary Baptist Church. And that's been such a blessing to do. Thank you so much for your prayers. I'm going to go ahead and ask right now that you continue to pray for our younger generations, that you continue to pray that God would use them, that God would uh, reveal himself in, in new ways that would continue to inspire them to be the change that this world so desperately needs. So thank you for your prayers already. And if you haven't done so, continue to pray for that ministry. Well, I'm excited to be with you this morning, Pastor Chad. Uh, reminded me this morning that it's Memorial Day weekend and that's the only time they let youth pastors preach is when they know people are going to be away so they don't mess up that much. And so thank you, Chad, for that wonderful word of encouragement this morning. Um, but, but nonetheless, I'm excited to be with you. We're in the book of Hebrews, right? We're talking about how Jesus is, is greater. Jesus is better than anything and everything we could have ever imagined. We're in this book that's really more of a sermon as we've established Right in chapter one, we talked about how Jesus is supreme. He is the greatest thing to ever exist in the history of everything. He rules everything, right? He, he rules, he has dominion over everything. He reveals God himself, right? He redeems people. And, and, and in a sense, we've established that in chapter one, Jesus is God, okay? Jesus is God. He's almighty, all powerful, all ruling, reveals God, redeems people. He is God. And last week we talked about how Jesus is superior, greater than, better than the angels, right? He's better than the angels. He's a better messenger than the angels. If we've established, angels literally means messenger, but Jesus was a better messenger, right? And why was that important? Why was it important for us to establish that? Remember, the author is writing to, to first uh, century Christians, right, who are still being tempted to go back into their old ways of legalism and traditions and Judaism. They're, they're tempted to go back and, and fulfill things that are no longer needing to be fulfilled because they've been fulfilled in Jesus, right? The author is reminding the, the, the audience that, hey, you don't need to go back to that. Keep fixing your eyes on Jesus, Right? But obviously it's hard, or it's easy, actually, to, to go back to things that are common, things that we know. Imagine growing up in a specific way, thinking a specific way, and all of a sudden, Jesus changes everything. Remind yourselves of the moment when you first met Jesus before that, and remind yourself of after, how in that moment everything changed. But it didn't make life easier. If anything, maybe it made life more challenging. But we knew that the goodness that was found in Jesus was above anything and everything we could ever comprehend or enjoy, right? He is the greatest messenger. He was the message in the flesh. One of the things that, that we, we saw last week is how uh, these first century Christians viewed angels in such a high regard, right? That they're powerful, they're mighty, they're, they're, they're just awesome, right? That God would use them. And they were looked at as superior, but we've established again that Jesus is greater than that. Right? And we've also established that because he is the fulfillment of the old prophecies that that message is bringing, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one that was to come, that everything that they're so used to listening and reading about is finished in Jesus. Right? But we can have grace again that these first centuries Jews, you know, it's easy to fall back. And honestly, at the same time, there's persecution going around. 
There's persecution that's happening around this time, and it's, it's not easy to follow Jesus. It's not fun to follow Jesus. But they know the gospel, they know the truth, and they have indeed surrendered their lives to Jesus. They're just struggling a little bit. But be reminded that this isn't a sermon to correct them. This isn't a sermon of do's and don'ts, right? He's not writing to them saying, do this, don't do that, make sure you do this. No, because that would defeat the purpose of salvation by grace in the first place. No, he's writing them to remind them of what Jesus has done. Everything in this book is pointing to Jesus, how he is greater, how he is supreme, how he's better, how he is the finished work, the author and finisher of our faith. One of the things that they struggle with is comprehending that Jesus is God. How can Jesus be God? And we've answered that already in chapter 1. Well, how is he greater than the angels? It doesn't make sense. But we've established that already at the end of chapter 1. But now... They're struggling with this idea that we're going to tackle today is how could God be human? How, how did God or why did God become man? You just established that he's greater than the angels, but now you're telling me, as we're going to read, that he's, he was made lower than the angels for a moment. This doesn't, make, this, this doesn't make sense. But he did. God became fully man, and he did it for a specific reason, and we're going to tackle that. And if you know anything about humanity you know that we're broken, right? You know that we have our struggles. You know that we have sicknesses, diseases, sickness and diseases. We know that, that we fall into temptation. We sin often. We hurt people, right? We do things that are against what God had intended us to do because of our sinful nature, because of the fall of man. We're broken. And sometimes our brokenness is in revealed in the way that we speak even, and the way that we communicate to each other, and the way that we revere one another with our words, right? And it's revealed in such a way that, that sometimes catches us off guard. Now, here's the thing. I believe that one of the most outspoken experts in this area are our younger people. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a student pastor and because I've, I've worked with them, right? But because I am guilty of it as well. What I think that's even more extraordinary is that we find that this expertise in outspoken sin with our words is found at an even younger age when they're babies. Okay, I don't have children, and I look forward to the moment that I have children 10, 15 years from now. I'm excited for that. It's going to be great. But in the meantime, we've been blessed. Me and my wife have been blessed with a great family, and specifically we have two nieces and an awesome nephew that that we, we get to hang out with often. Really, almost every Friday, maybe other Friday, we get to hang out with our, our nieces and, and nephew. And here's the thing. We know that with children, it's a developmental thing, right? We see them kind of grow. When they're babies, they learn words like mom, dad, yes. And then we really start to see the sinful nature when they start saying no, right? We start to see them kind of, okay, yeah, you should not be saying no. You got to listen to me, right? And they start to see that. But then there's a monumental shift in the, in the developmental stage of, of an adolescent, right? And here's this thing. They start to learn a specific word that I think should strike fear into all parents here. It strikes fear into me. And the word is why, right? It's no longer yes, no. It's, well, why? Why do I have to do this? Or why is the world like that? Or why is this green? Why is this blue? Why is anything, every, like they just keep asking why. They're, they start to, be curious about things. There's no longer yes, no, but why? On a, one evening, on a Friday night, uh, we were spending time with, again, my, my nieces and nephews, and I love them. I love children. Let me, let me again, preface that. But again, 
they say sometimes the funniest things that catch you off guard. And I'm sitting there with my nephew, and we're watching a movie, and he looks at me, and he's just kind of staring at me, and I look at him, and I say, hey, man, you okay? He goes, Uncle, I have a question. I said, okay, yeah. He goes, Uncle, you like, why is your belly so much bigger than everyone else's? <laughs> Excuse me? Right? And so I'm looking at him, and I chuckle, out, and there's tears in my eyes, right? And because and, he just hurt me. And, and, I, and, and I didn't know what to say. He caught me off guard because why, why is your belly so much bigger? Than, like, it doesn't make sense. Like, look at auntie. Like, and, and, I, and I said, look, I decided right then there I will not start my relationship with my nephews based off a lie. I will tell them the truth. And I'm going to say, look, here's the reason why that my belly is so much bigger than everyone else's. And I said, your auntie loves to go out to eat all the time. And she just will not stop. I'm telling her, we got to stop going out to eat. She wants pizza this. So I blame, no, I'm kidding, right? I told him, obviously, well, you know, I've just been very, very blessed. That's what I said. And so, but it catches you off guard. And you laugh and you chuckle because, you know, oh, they're just curious. They're just asking funny questions because they want to know. And I often think of how does God look at us when we ask some questions that really don't necessarily I guess matter in a sense, not that they don't matter, but, but are funny, laughable to him. See, God's mind is so much greater than ours, right? He put everything into existence. He, he knows our thoughts before we even think them. God's mind is too much for us to even fathom. And we're seeing in, in what we're about to see right now is, is, is these Christians asking, okay, why was God made human? And I can just imagine God looking down and saying, oh my goodness, well, I'll explain it, right? And so this author is, is tasked with explaining this question of why did God become man? And the, the author answers this question very interestingly. He opens up with a passage that's familiar to them. Again, they're, they're struggling to go back to their old ways. These are, these are people that rever, are reverential to the, 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 the text, the, the Old Testament. And so he starts off with quoting a passage in Psalm 8. And it's also found in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It's quoting Psalm 8. It says this. It says, for he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. And you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Now this passage is not talking about Jesus. Now this passage is referring to the, to the Old Testament that we see in Genesis when, when God gives dominion to the world over human beings. He gives them everything that they need and he says go and enjoy and, and rule the world. Be happy, be joyful and rule all that is here. Right? Everything is subjected to you. Not even are these things subjected to the angels, which again is a, is, is a challenge on their way of thinking because we've just, again, established how they revere angels. But now he's again mentioning to them, remember this, that eventually the kingdom that is to come, you are going to rule over it. We were supposed to rule over it from the very beginning. You have dominion over everything. Nothing is outside of it. Nothing is outside that is not subjected to you. This was the story that was told and known but of course, he obviously has to mention the fall of man as he ends verse 8. He says, as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Right? We were once crowned with glory and honor. And though we were made a little lower than the angels, we had full authority of the world. But now he's emphasizing that we have not 
establish that dominion anymore, any longer, because of the fall of man. And it's a good thing that we don't have subjection today. Why? Because we are tainted with sin. We are born into sin. We have a sinful nature that if things were subjected to us, we would continue to create chaos and madness and sin and just destruction. We wouldn't be able to handle the power that we would have if we had the same power that they had in the beginning. We would destroy everything. It would create more and more separation from our God because that is the truth of what happened. When the fall of man came, it established a broken relationship with our father, a relationship that wasn't meant to be broken, a relationship that God wanted for us to have together forever and eternity to rule and have dominion. But our simple nature has overpowered us and if we have the same type of dominion today, it would not end well. More destruction, more separation, continuing to fail to meet the standard that God has for us when ruling the world, continuing to fail that standard. And that's frustrating sometimes, right? When you set something in motion to go for a certain way and it doesn't turn out that way, it doesn't pan out that way. No one knows this more better than my precious wife, right? Now again, I'll establish this right off the bat. I know that she's been blessed with probably one of the most amazing husbands ever. But, but, but I'm not perfect, okay? And I still make mistakes. And she has grace on me. She loves me. She loves me enough to give me just one job. Just one job. Take out the trash. That's it. Take it out. When I get home, just please make sure that the trash is in the bin. Yeah, of course. That's e- just one job. You have one job. That's easy. You're giving me one job. And inevitably, of course, somehow, some way, the control falls into my hand. I don't know how. And I sit on the couch and the TV turns on automatically by the spirit. I don't know. And the movie turns on and I'm watching. I fall asleep. And then the dreaded sound that no one wants to hear is the garage door opening, waking up and realizing, oh, my goodness, I had one job. Take out the trash. I didn't do it. I'm in trouble. <laughs> right? But she's gracious. She loves me. And while that's silly, on a much more serious note, this is what has happened. We had one job, rule the world, enjoy it. And we messed that up. We couldn't do it. We destroyed our relationship with Jesus. And now we see that nothing is subjected to us anymore. But now the author shifts into some good news in verse nine. He says, well, we don't have anything yet. We don't see it subjected to us right now anymore. This is what we do see. Verse nine, follow with me. But we do see Jesus. We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Jesus came in human form, fully God and fully man, to show us what perfect relationship was supposed to look like with the Father. He's telling them, look to Jesus. You can't see it right now, but what you can't see is Jesus. If you look to him, you will see of the goodness that is to come in the future, of someone who has established a perfect relationship with a father that we so desperately need. Keep looking to him as the author and the finisher, looking to him now that he's so near to us, that he's tangible, that you can actually touch him, right? That we, could, we, 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 we know that Jesus, as he was on earth, touched people. Look, look to him because everything is still subjected to Jesus because he's still God, That's why it's so amazing when the disciples get on the boat in the middle of a storm and Jesus calms the storm. 
Or when he goes up to a blind man, touches him, and he's instantly healed, he can see again. Why? Because Jesus is establishing his dominion over the world and showing them that he is all-powerful, almighty, and he's also human, doing the exact same things that we're called to do. He's representing what we're supposed to be. Eventually, that will come. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's biblically wrong to think of Jesus as merely God or merely man. It's wrong to think of him that way. It's wrong to think of him as half God and half man or any percentage split you want to do. It's wrong to think of him as man on the outside, God on the inside. No, the Bible teaches, okay, that God is fully, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That a human nature was added to his divine nature and both natures existed in one person and that is Christ Jesus. That is the truth of who Jesus is. All things were still subjected to him. His rule, his reign, he was all powerful, everything. But yet, while it was still under his reign and subjected to him, he chose to taste death. We're reminded though, once again, as we celebrate every Easter that he has defeated death, he's crowned with glory and honor. Through his suffering though, he did not suffer death but did not, he did not suffer death, but did not stay dead. He suffered death, but did not stay dead. But it was through that suffering that he was crowned with glory. There's something greater to come. There will be a day that because of what Jesus has done, we will all be reunited with the Father, rejoicing and praising him forever and ever. And we can look forward to that day. But we, while we're here for a short while, continue to trust in him and look to him as the prime example, as the sacrifice that was made for us to have that in the future and we'll soon enough be again with him. Again, what a beautiful answer to the question of why did God become man? But it doesn't end there, of course, right? Because they still have questions. And the author has to go on to explain exactly why Jesus had to suffer, right? I can imagine the people again asking the question, okay, you've established that Jesus is a great example of what's to come and that he, you know, he redeemed us and he's fully God, fully man, that's great. And he's a, an example of, of what we're supposed to be like in, from the very beginning. But, but here's, here's what I don't understand. Why did Jesus have to die though? Why did he have to die? This does not make sense. He's supposed to be a savior. Why couldn't he do it in some different way? Why does there have to be death applied? Isn't he God? Can't he just magically do it in a different way? And again, why is this important? Because they're used to seeing a God that by just a breath, someone would collapse dying. Or by speaking something, fire would come from the sky. All powerful, almighty. This is the God that they grew up knowing. Right? Powerful. Showed up and demonstrated his power. But now you're telling me to look to Jesus who was crucified, who died? I mean, that's great, but but why did he have to do it that way? And the author responds in verse 10 to why this was the way it had to be done. Hebrews 2 verse 10 says this, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate. Some translations say fitting. It was appropriate. It was fitting. That God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was appropriate. It was fitting to make salvation perfect through sufferings. And it's important to keep in mind what this word perfection really means. Often when we hear the word perfection, we think of it in, in a specific way. 
But what the author's trying to say here is that perfection really means completion, right? God had a plan from the very beginning, before he was even born, before we were even born, before the world even existed. He had a plan. He said, this is what's going to happen. Okay, right here. He is outside of time. The timeline does not look the same as we view it. His timeline is outside. We can't even imagine it. But he's saying right here in this moment is when I will be born of a virgin and take on flesh in this moment. And right here in this moment is when I will be crucified and dead. And here I will be resurrected again. It was perfected through sufferings. It was complete in his divinity, right? This was all part of the plan. He had a divine plan from the beginning. God's love for us had to show itself in sacrifice. And God could not sacrifice unless he added humanity to his deity and suffered on our behalf. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, very famous preacher that we have, says this. He says, we know that had he only been God, yet still he would not have been fitted for a perfect savior unless he had become man. Man had sinned. Man must suffer. It was man in whom God's purposes had been for a while defeated. It must be in man that God must triumph over his great enemy. And again, we're so used to even today seeing superheroes and, and people save the world that are powerful and strong and mighty. They don't lose, right? They don't get hurt. They're, they're just powerful. But no, Jesus is choosing to take on flesh. And it was fitting. And the point is that it was fitting for the Father to do this. Why? Isaiah 53.10 says that it, the sense, in the sense that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to do it for the sake of bringing many sons to glory. Again, the author is using Old Testament texts that they're familiar with, right? Old Testament writings to remind them that everything that we see in Jesus has been prophesied in the Old Testament and has now come to fruition in him, that we can trust Jesus as the author and finisher, the captain, the redeemer, the pioneer of our salvation by faith alone, no longer needing to go back and, com and completed in, his full, in the full fruition of his humanity. That is why it's acceptable. That's why it is fitting. And that's why it is appropriate. But the author is not blind and understands what this means as well for them. What the cost of following Jesus looks like. Again, there's persecution happening at, at the same time that this is being written. There's fear that is rooted in persecution and in the enemy continuing to attack, to instill this fear to distract them from Jesus. That's the whole purpose, to distract us from Jesus. But he ensures them, again, that Jesus was not blind to this either. Verse 14 says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Fear. Fear. One of the greatest fears that we have in humanity is death. Death scares a lot of people. And one of the great examples is just look at the pandemic, right? The entire world shut down because they were afraid of death. They were afraid of their lives ending short. And now we wash our hands, even just without even thinking, right? 
We, we use sanitizer. We, it's been embedded in us. This fear that was instilled in us is still somehow leeching on. And sometimes this fear that we have distracts us from the truth that is there, that is here in this scripture. And what is the truth? Is that this, is that the one who seeks to, keep, to steal, kill, and destroy is this devil himself. And that we need to be reminded of the truth that Jesus has defeated this death, that death no longer has a claim, that death no longer holds a sting, and that we no longer should live in fear but live in faith. Faith in Jesus. Our slavery to death is no more. There's something greater. Better yet, there's someone greater that we fix our eyes on. And how did he do it? By taking on flesh and blood. He died himself in order to defeat death. But within that victory, there is now life for you and for me. As we close in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. He is your high priest. He is the high priest. If you remember again, what is significant for the people that he's writing to is that in the Old Testament, what would the high priest do? Once a year, the high priest would go in and create sacrifices for the atonement of his people, right? So he would go in. And he would sacrifice something for his sin, asking for forgiveness. And then he would go later in the day and sacrifice something for the people of Israel. But now what is he saying? But now he's saying that Jesus is our high priest, that he's the one who goes before us as the perfect sacrifice, the lamb that was slain to represent us as his brothers and sisters, as the children of God. The beauty of Jesus in his humanity is that he shared with us many things. He shared with us many things. Joy. Over dinner, smiling, laughing, jokes, stories. He shared that. He also shared in, in sadness, crying, weeping. Jesus wept at, at, at the news of Lazarus dying. He knows the feeling of losing someone. He knows the feeling of pain, physical pain, pain that was inflicted on him. Whipping, beating, ultimately crucified on a cross. He knows that pain. We also see that he suffered with us in temptation. Verse 18, for he himself has suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are tempted. He shared that with all of us. But there's one thing that he did not share. One thing. And that was failure. Failure to meet God's standard. He shared in every way through pain, emotion, and affliction, yet was without sin and temptation. And that's why the gospel is so powerful. That's why the author is reminding the audience of what he has done in his humanity. That he took on flesh while he knew no sin became sin so that he, we might be reconciled to the Father. Doing nothing wrong, becoming human so that we who deserve death might be crowned in glory with him. Jesus is sitting on the throne right now. Holes in his hands as proof. Proof to everyone that the kingdom that is to come, we will soon be together praising our God forever. We're not slaves to death or fear. We are freed in Christ Jesus. God became man so that he might atone the sins of the world through his suffering. 
And so we're called to look to Jesus who is crowned in glory with confidence that he knows our suffering and has made salvation perfect through suffering. What do you have to lay down this morning? What distractions, what fears are are embedded in your mind that continue to distract you from the one who has already defeated that? The one who has already said, no, you can no longer be a slave to fear. Rebuke that in my name, says Jesus, because I have overcome it. I am no longer a slave to fear. What things do you have to, uh, what distractions do you have to surrender right now that would continue to uh, push you towards Jesus? That you lay them down and see the beautifulness of Jesus and his humanity, the beauty of his humanity that he took on flesh, that he shared everything with us in pain and emotion, yet was without sin. My prayer this morning, church, is that we would recognize that and be reminded of that good news. And if this is the first time you've ever heard of this good news, then I call you to repentance and belief in Jesus meaning turn away from your old life, come and know him as the real savior of this world, as the person who has shed his blood for you specifically. Maybe you're a believer in here for a long time and needed to be reminded that Jesus has overcome everything and that we can run to him as our high priest, as our representation in the gospel. In a moment, we're gonna have time to respond The altar will be open. You'll be able to come and pray. We'll have pastors here that would like to pray for you too. You can come and also take this time to to give your tithes and offerings as a form of worship. But don't take this time for granted. Use this time to seek him, to know him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for allowing us to come together this morning. I pray, Jesus, that ultimately we would continue to be reminded of who you are and what you have done. That we would be reminded, Father, that you are better. And that one of the greatest moments that we can do and will have is to magnify your name. That we would say Christ would be magnified in every part of this world, in our hearts, in our cities, in our nations, in this world, Father, that we would continue to give you all the praise and honor. Jesus, we repent of our fear. We believe that you are near, that you are here, that we can trust in your spirit to continue to move and convict us. I pray, Jesus, that we would see many come to glory in the years to come. It's your name we pray. Amen.